The following contains situations and circumstances that are relatable to all women, but are still uncomfortable and sometimes quite awful. We don't pull any punches. Listener discretion is advised. Life's a foolish game. Do you ever feel the same? Well, maybe we could change. Turn the ship another way. Feel it in the darkness. We're sailing right into those jagged cliffs. Yeah. Some say we've always been insane. Hey, life's a foolish game. Life's a foolish game. The struggle to be recognized is something all women face. To be seen as credible, your work acknowledged. To be distinguished among your peers as an expert in your field. Women work tirelessly for this coveted status, often much harder than their male counterparts. To break the glass ceiling, to run with the captains of industry, and count yourself among them requires time, determination, and a lot of hard work. If it was just a matter of fake it till you make it, Everyone would do it, right? Welcome to Frenemies, a Toil and Trouble Media original. On this show, we examine notable women and the rivalries that help define them. Today, a young poser tries to scam her way to the top, only to be brought down by the real deal. It's the tale of Phyllis Gardner and Elizabeth Holmes. Most people are familiar with at least the public perception of Elizabeth Holmes, the blonde, wide-eyed baritone that made time in her busy schedule of giving TED Talks, shopping for black turtlenecks, and drinking green juice to revolutionize healthcare by founding Theranos. Lesser known is an obscure Stanford professor who saw through it all from the very beginning. In fact, this might possibly go down in history as the biggest I told you so ever. At Stanford, Phyllis Gardner is a big deal. By the time she joined the faculty at the university's School of Medicine, serving as the chief resident and dean of education, Phyllis had already racked up an impressive resume of professional and academic honors as long as your arm. She studied at Harvard Medical School, was a postdoctoral fellow at University College London, completed research fellowships at both University College London and Columbia University, and trained in internal medicine at the Massachusetts General Hospital. She developed several forms of slow-release medication, including an adaption for digestive retention. She founded several startups in the biotechnology and pharmaceutical industries, companies like the Genobics Collaborative, Scolar, and the Cambria Tech Holding Company. She once served as vice president of research and head of the Technology Institute at Alzia Corporation and served as the director of biopharmaceutical company Revance Therapeutics. She is an adjunct partner at Essex Woodland Health Ventures. She sat on the board of directors at the Ventiera Pharmaceuticals and Colbar, and she serves on the board of fellows at the Harvard Medical School. In a word, girl knows her shit. So, she was used to students bopping in her office, pitching their next grand idea to revolutionize healthcare. Happened all the time. In fact, when a colleague referred an undergrad to her office with a brilliant idea, she chuckled. She'd seen it all before. The sophomore with brown hair and acne gave her pitch for a wearable device capable of monitoring and dispensing antibiotics, her youthful voice transmitting her enthusiasm as well as her naivete. 
Phyllis listened briefly before informing the student her idea wouldn't work and suggesting she try something else. But this particular student was different. She wouldn't take no for an answer. Elizabeth Holmes was born on February 3rd, 1984 in Washington, D.C. Her father, a vice president at Enron, her mother, a congressional committee staffer. Generations back, the Holmeses were related to the founder of the Fleischmann's Yeast Company, something they were particularly proud of. Elizabeth was a good student and a natural entrepreneur. While in high school, she reportedly sold C++ compilers to Chinese universities. Her parents were very supportive and encouraged her pursuits. They provided her with a Mandarin tutor and sent her to Stanford University's summer program. When she was 18, the program took a trip to Beijing. There, she met Ramzesh Sunny Belwani, a Pakistani-born Hindu who immigrated to India before moving to the United States. Drawn by their mutual interest in technology enterprises, Elizabeth was intrigued by the married man 19 years her senior. They stayed in touch after she started attending Stanford's chemical engineering program, working as a student researcher and laboratory assistant. When he divorced, they grew closer, eventually developing a romantic relationship. At Stanford, Elizabeth was in her element. She was on her way, exposed to exciting new ideas and possibilities. Then she was raped. On October 5, 2003, Elizabeth called the police to report she'd been sexually assaulted at a fraternity event. Sadly, many women experience sexual assault while at college or university, and far too many of these institutions refuse to admit it and even less put measures in place to stop it. Name any college or institution you like, whether private or public, and the statistics remain the same. Campus sexual assaults are offensively common, horribly underreported, atrociously ignored, and minimized. There is no evidence suggesting Elizabeth's experience with this was any different. In later interviews, she said that as she recovered, she took stock in her life, trying to figure out a way to move past it. She wanted to be revolutionary, a game changer. She wanted to use the trauma to transform herself, start a company, and change lives. Now, whether or not the assault was truly the motivating factor for her entrepreneurial resurgence is up for debate. I have my doubts. While I am not minimizing the impact of that assault at all, she did display a high business drive long before she went to Stanford. So while the experience undoubtedly was horrific and affected her, I have a hard time believing she wouldn't have strived for it anyway, even if she hadn't been attacked. But it does sound like she was determined to succeed at any cost. So maybe that was the result. By the end of her freshman year, Elizabeth took a job at the Genome Institute in Singapore as a lab technician. There, she worked with blood samples, testing for SARS-CoV-1. The needles, syringes, and large vials around her got her thinking. Was all of this really necessary? Presuming she already had the answer, she launched a company and filed a patent. On the provisional application, the paperwork where applicants describe the invention they wish to patent, the teen wrote, medical devices and methods capable of real-time detection of biological activity and the controlled and localized release of appropriate therapeutic agents. The language, vague and without substance, more closely represented a hurried homework assignment written by a procrastinating student eager to meet a required word count, and the patent was reviewed for technical issues. When the patent was granted, to the undergrad's delight, it was for an idea, 
not for an actual invention. Ambitious? Sure. Impressive for a kid who couldn't get into a bar legally? Absolutely. Patents play a critical role in helping take a company from a startup to a full-fledged industry giant. When legitimate, they provide a tangible asset, something investors can examine. But patents are only as good as the invention. All they do is permit the bearer to stop someone else from using their invention's technology or design without their permission. That's it. They don't verify anything. They don't even prove an invention actually works. They're only intended to give the inventor time to successfully launch, distribute, and profit from their creations before getting crowded out by knockoffs. They are a 20-year placeholder. When Elizabeth mentioned the patent in her pitch to Phyllis, she made it sound like the patent was for an actual device. And Phyllis called bullshit. Patents and companies notwithstanding, her premise of a small device capable of performing multiple tests and administering antibiotics was a fantasy. Not due to mechanical issues, which, although complex, can be overcome with time, but biological ones. Countless biological ones. Ones that the chemical engineering student totally ignored. Still, Phyllis was a good person. She wanted to encourage the budding young woman, so she praised the naive student for her good intentions before letting her down gently. Antibiotics don't work that way, honey. They can't be delivered in minute quantities. That's why IVs come in big bags and bottles. To her surprise and annoyance, Elizabeth ignored everything she said. Instead, she started lecturing the professor on her imaginary device's even more imaginary merits. That it could reap vast amounts of data from a few droplets of blood derived from the tip of a finger. Again, she pressed the professor to agree. Was she kidding, Phyllis thought? She didn't think her answer was that confusing. Removing any ambiguity, she told the co-ed flat out that what she was proposing was impossible. And here's why. Drops of blood can be used to test for some things, which is why a finger prick can be used to measure blood sugar levels, cholesterol, and DNA. But droplets can't test for everything, and certainly not for everything at the same time. Blood droplets are like snowflakes. They're not uniform or identical enough to accurately measure particular proteins, hemoglobins, hormones, or white blood cell levels. Some blood tests involve exposing the sample to chemical reactions. Other tests extract individual components, removing them from the base sample altogether. And still other tests, like those measuring blood clotting, rely on measuring the number of components present. That requires a lot more than a few random drops. Another unescapable torpedo to the universal droplet test idea is that blood compositions differ depending on where they're extracted. The composition of blood gathered from a finger is completely different from blood gathered from an arm, as are the blood samples that are gathered from an artery versus a vein. And lest we forget, blood tests provide essential information that's used to make really important decisions about someone's medical care. Lives are on the line with every single stick. But Elizabeth just wouldn't listen. She kept saying the same thing with different words. She refused to accept Phyllis's reasons, the science, or anything else. When the student returned again to deliver the same patch pitch, she made it clear the only way she was leaving that office was with Phyllis's full endorsement. And that wasn't going to happen. 
Was this kid on dope? Phyllis thought as she held her tongue in her professionalism. The doctor wondered if Elizabeth wouldn't accept rejection from her, perhaps she would accept it from others. Instead of belaboring the issue, she suggested the student find new mentors. She recommended a few people Elizabeth might get in touch with, including her husband, venture capitalist Andrew Perlman, and sent her on her way. She figured that when the real tech investors started asking her the tough questions, it would snap the student back into reality. Elizabeth was satisfied, and Phyllis was happy to be rid of her. Perlman and an associate did meet with Elizabeth when she invited them to be on her scientific advisory board, but it soon became clear she wasn't interested in listening to them either. Unimpressed by her collection of patents, they recognized she'd invented something that didn't work and had no biological way of ever working and advised her to take things in a different direction. As she had done before, Elizabeth refused. When it became clear they weren't going to tell her what she wanted to hear, she disbanded the board and gave them a few shares of stock for their trouble. Perlman kept them as a souvenir. Phyllis had to chuckle. Undeterred, Elizabeth kept filing patents and the university grapevine continued to follow her efforts to find backers for the company whose core technology didn't exist. Phyllis thought nothing of it as the other venture capitalists took a look at her proposal and turned her down. But some did listen and were intrigued by what they heard. People like Channing Robertson, the dean of Stanford School of Engineering. Robertson listened to Elizabeth's pitch and all the patents she had filed to protect her technology and signed on as her first board member. Robertson's buy-in was the score she had been looking for. Theranos was now legitimate. With her parents' blessing, Elizabeth dropped out of college, put her unused tuition money into company coffers, and went to work on Robert's extensive list of connections. Elizabeth's first major investor was Tim Draper. After listening to her pitch and seeing all those patents, the Silicon Valley venture capitalist cut her a check for $1 million. That was approximately $250,000 per patent if you're keeping score. Phyllis was. That was one very expensive lesson if you asked her. But no one did. And with the $1 million hurdle cleared, she and Sonny moved into an apartment together and focused on how to grow the company, if not legitimately, visually. From the very beginning, it seems that Elizabeth had a keen eye for optics. The very name of her company was a mashup of the Latin words for therapy and diagnosis or the words therapy and us. Some people aren't sure. But there were a number of things Phyllis noticed that confused people, and to her alarm, most of them went along with it anyway. Listening to Elizabeth's carefully crafted messages inspired people to close their eyes and open their wallets. Theranos would democratize healthcare, making it affordable and accessible to everyone. When she heard the news, Phyllis rolled her eyes. Branding and emotions weren't enough to get around human biology. And lest we forget, she hadn't invented anything. But according to what she told potential investors and the press, Elizabeth had. She'd invented a revolutionary, state-of-the-art, highly technical blood screening device dubbed the Edison. With it, over 200 tests could be performed with just a few drops of blood. Was that so? Phyllis scoffed. In an interview for The New Yorker, Elizabeth described the process utilized by her not-yet-invented-but-still-completely-existing, totally-functional machine as, and I quote, 
A chemistry is performed so that a chemical reaction occurs and generates a signal from the chemical interaction with the sample, which is translated into a result, which is then reviewed by certified laboratory personnel. Or, as Phyllis would translate to anybody who is listening, nonsense, 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 garbage, garbage, garbage. Elizabeth didn't have time to actually create her inventions. She had a corporation to run and patents to file. The responsibility of bringing her concepts to life was left to Ian Gibbons. In 2005, Elizabeth recruited the brilliant scientist to head the department trying to develop her flagship device, the Edison. You know, that thing that she'd already assured investors existed. In spite of the multitudes of mechanical and biological limits, Gibbons was inspired by the young entrepreneur and the amount of resources and funding at the company's disposal. What's more, he genuinely believed in the potential of the technology and its impact on the lives of millions of patients. But no matter what its potential on paper, the concept was still proven biologically impossible again and again. And the chief scientist became increasingly concerned about the lack of scientific validation for the device's performance. Not to mention the lack of communication, near non-existent transparency between departments, and Elizabeth's public claims of reliable, successful results. That was way beyond an exaggerated pitch. It was outright untrue. His concerns only grew when he tried to talk with her personally and was blocked at every turn. Every time he reached out, he was told she'd stepped away for a meeting or for a run or Sonny refused him altogether. When he heard her meetings were with companies to use the device with actual patients, he was horrified. How could she do that? Good question. She and Sonny remained tight-lipped about anything having to do with Theranos' actual business activity. The only thing they were willing to disclose was the ever-growing number of patents for more supposed inventions. At least four patents were submitted to the U.S. Patent Office by the end of 2005, followed by at least eight more in 2006, all containing the same mysteriously vague language and mysteriously confident descriptions. Judging by the number being submitted to patent offices around the globe, one would think she was Ron Popeil. But investors ate it up. They took a look at the patents as evidence of medical breakthroughs and corporation legitimacy. Their inventor shirt looked the part. With Sunny's help, the budding young superstar adopted a new look. She dyed her hair and replaced her typical teenage wardrobe with black turtlenecks. She changed her voice, too. It was deeper. Phyllis was immediately suspicious of the transformation. She was running around in a Steve Jobs disguise. Elizabeth mimicked the Titan tech in other ways. She started quoting him and imitating his known personal habits. She leaned into the Apple image, naming her products in a similar style. Those little vials with blood samples? Those were nanotainers. Some may have been willing to explain the similarity as a quirky coincidence, but others point out that a new version of the iPod Nano had been talked about for the better part of a year before its release, and it practically served as an endorsement for the Edison. And as the list of coincidences grew, so did Elizabeth's credibility. By December of that year, investors poured $6 million into the firm. And with more investors and more money, the patents kept coming. By now, you have to be asking yourself, how does that happen? The answers lie within the bureaucracy of the patent office. The U.S. Patent Office is underfunded and understaffed on a good day. 
charged with reviewing and processing hundreds of thousands of applications each year with a similar number of applicants pushing them to be worked faster and faster. The office does the best they can with what they've got. Their staff is knowledgeable about the patent process, but they're not scientists or super geniuses. And their job becomes even more tenuous when charged with evaluating an application that doesn't require proof or a working prototype. Applicants certify their requests are legitimate under a flimsy attestation, but it's ultimately no more than a glorified honor system. And while you can't outright patent something that does not work, People can and do patent theoretical inventions all the time. As a result, the patent office spends a lot of time treading water in a sea of applications, which leads to more questions. Since that's the case, why do investors accept patents as proof of anything? Why don't they demand more verification? That, too, can be blamed on the patent process. An essential criteria of any utility or design patent is its novelty. To be approved, an innovation must be completely new and never before made public. And that inability to publicize has teeth. It applies to everyone, even the inventor herself. Just like a tree falling in the woods with no one to hear it. If no one actually admits an invention doesn't work, doesn't it work? Even a little? In a company that was so forward-thinking and patent-focused, keeping proprietary secrets made sense. So, Theranos kept filing patents, at least 16 in 2004 and another 20 in the next couple years. And Elizabeth kept pretending the technology was real. We see a world in which no one ever has to say, if only I'd known sooner. A world in which no one ever has to say goodbye so soon. It drove Phyllis nuts. Gibbons could probably relate. As he worked to make the Edison, the actual laboratory version of her pipe dream real, he ran into numerous problems. Naturally, there was that whole biological impossibility of running the multitudes of tests with a few drops of blood, but increasing the size of the sample was out of the question. Elizabeth wouldn't hear of it. She'd already assured the board that the Edison could do it, and she had the patents to prove it. So Gibbons was pushed to make it happen, whether he could realistically pull it off or not. Then came the pressure to achieve the impossible immediately. Unrealistic accomplishments were expected at breakneck speed. While this might be an acceptable way to crank out the latest iPhone, that's no way to conduct medical research. Gibbons was all too aware of the lives that the practice would put at risk. There was also a matter of the results of the device itself. The tests he ran showed the Edison's feedback was wildly inconsistent, due in no small part to the problems with attempting one-size screenings on a minuscule, less-than-uniform sample. In-house technicians were often instructed to increase the size of the blood samples by diluting them with water, tainting the results from the very start. You know, we are talking about vitally important tests, you know, not Culligan. As he learned of the pervasiveness of these risky practices, Gibbons attempted to raise concerns internally. He warned corporate leadership that the Edison wasn't ready for the field and that slapping together a makeshift workaround would lead to inaccurate test results and potentially harm patients. But his worries were dismissed. It was made clear to him that job number one was to keep investment dollars rolling in. To that end, Elizabeth and company were more focused on maintaining the image of being a successful medical testing company than actually doing what they promised. We'll pick up again with the story next week. This has been Frenemies. Thanks for listening. 
Enemies is an original production of Toil and Trouble Media. Executive produced by Jennifer Beck. This episode was also written and performed by Jennifer Beck. I'm kind of a big deal. Additional production assistance was provided by Aaron Iris and David Beck. And our music was performed by Snowflake and Admiral Bob. Thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen and tell your friends. It helps us rise above the crowd. And check out our website at toilandtroublemedia.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Threads. We're also on Patreon, and we have a YouTube channel if you want even more Toil and Trouble Media in your life. I lost control of those outlets a long time ago, so you never know what you're going to find. They're kind of like herding cats. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.